Well, good afternoon. Introductions are important when you're meeting someone for the first time. If a talk show host has a special guest, they often begin their introduction without mentioning the name of the guest, but they first run through a list of accomplishments that this guest has accumulated in their life. So in, in other words, they might say, well, my next guest has done this and has won this award and has made this accomplishment in their life. And finally, they round it off by saying, please welcome, and out comes the guest. An introduction is meant to build anticipation in that way. People are asking, who is it? What have they done? What's it going to be like to meet them? And when they're named, the anticipation is rewarded. The crowd cheers, the band plays, and we finally meet the person who's famous or renowned. Our passage today is the Apostle John's introduction to his gospel, and what an introduction it is. But John isn't just introducing anyone to us. He's setting the stage for us to meet the most important person in all of history. Accomplishments are listed as we begin moving through his introduction. They're listed one after another in the grandest of ways. Each sentence builds on the one before it. And finally, in the next to last verse, he's named Jesus Christ. We're diving into the Gospel of John beginning today. When we first planted Covenant Hope Church back in the spring of 2017, I first preached through two shorter books, Philippians and Habakkuk, and then we went on into the Gospel of Mark. And so a Gospel was one of the first books that we studied together as a church. And this is going to be our first return to a Gospel since then. So I'm really eager for us to encounter Jesus in a new way. Let's be praying together that our time in John's account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection deepens our love for Jesus and the good news that's found in Him. Now, John's gospel is different than the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other three gospels are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means giving a general view of a whole of course, John's gospel does that in many ways. It gives us an overview of Jesus' life as well. But John organizes his gospel in a different way, and he's written it in a different way, a different style. If your Bible has Jesus' words in red print, you're going to see a lot more red in the book of John when compared with the other gospels. There are particularly long speeches spoken by Jesus and long conversations between He and His opponents, and then later in the book, He and His disciples. There are two Johns in the Gospel of John, but John the Baptist is the only one who's referred to by name. John the Baptist is not the one who wrote the Gospel of John. The John who wrote the account is a disciple of Jesus, and was the brother of James, another disciple of Jesus as well. And John only refers to himself in his account as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
The first 18 verses that we're looking at this afternoon are some of the most profound verses in the entire Bible written about Jesus. Bible scholars call this passage the prologue. It's like the author's introduction that sets the stage for the whole account. And so we find the most important themes in John's whole gospel. They're introduced here in these verses. Along with Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, give us the clearest and most concise teaching about who Jesus of Nazareth was and is. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Follow along with me as I read out loud. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that through Your Word today, You would help us see the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who have received Him, who have believed in His name, Lord, we pray that You would strengthen their faith. And for those who haven't, Lord, we pray that You would give them the gift of faith. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, John's main goal in this passage, 1 through 18, is to encourage us to believe in Jesus, the Creator God, who gives life and reveals God to us. Let me say that again for you. 
believe in Jesus, the Creator God, who gives life and reveals God to us. That fits also with what John directly tells us is the goal of his writing his entire gospel account. That's found very close to the end of the gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31. And there in 31, John says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you hear the similarities? Now, the first of three points in today's sermon is this. Jesus is the Creator. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly who he's talking about at the very beginning of these 18 verses, but we've read all the way to the end, and we know it's Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to say Jesus is the Creator. We see that in the first five verses. Now, if you were a good Jew, and I said, let's play a little word association game, and I said, I'm going to say a phrase, and you try to complete it with whatever comes to mind first. And then I said to you, in the beginning, well, as a good Jew, you'd know exactly how to finish that sentence. You'd think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Even lots of non-Christians know that verse. (laughs) With this first verse in John's gospel, John is making our minds page all the way back to the first few chapters of Genesis. He wants us thinking about things like God and eternity and creation. But instead of God following in the beginning... John says, in the beginning was the Word. Of course, now we know that there in Genesis 1, God does speak words. In verse 3, He says, let there be light, just like Jenny read to us earlier. And He creates light just by speaking it into existence. John's focus is on these words, or more specifically, the Word. And so John continues with verse 1 and into verse 2 and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's very poetic sounding, and it has lots of repetition in it. John is telling us that this Word was both with God and was God and is eternal like the God of Genesis 1.1. And this word, he tells us, is a person. Now, not necessarily a human, but a person, because he calls him he. He was in the beginning with God. So verse 1 and 2 together, they make amazing claims about God that would shock any Jew. These verses are foundational to, of course, what would become our understanding of the one God being made up of three persons. These verses give grounding to what early theologians call the Trinity. Now, you might know that a group called the Jehovah's Witness actually twist this first verse in John chapter 1, verse 1. 
They twist it and they translate it as, and the word was a God. And by doing that, they're trying to make a point that Jesus was not eternal. Jesus was actually a created being by God the Father. This is not true. And if you ever find or get your hands on or are given something called the New World Translation, you're being given the Bible translated by the cult group Jehovah's Witness. And if you turn to John 1.1 there, you'll see that. And I encourage you not to study the New World Translation. Now, John continues to link the eternal word, who is God, with creation. And so in verse 3, he boldly states that all things that have been made were made through him. The word wasn't just a spectator to God's creating work. He was the creator. He is the creator. The beginning of verse 4, John tells us that the word had life in him. Now, we know, of course, that in Genesis 1 and 2, God was the one who gave life to all the animals that he created, even all the plants that he created, different kind of life, of course. But most importantly, God gave life to Adam and Eve. He could breathe life into them because he had life in himself. He is the source of all life. And John is telling us that that was Jesus Jesus was the one who breathed life into Adam. But with verse 4 and then verse 5, John begins to shift our thinking away from Genesis 1 and eternity past to the world that we know, a world filled with people who live in ignorance of God and are actually in active rebellion against God. But John does that cleverly by continuing to use imagery from Genesis 1. The end of verse 4 tells us that the life that was in the Word, who was God, it was the light of men. Okay, he's mentioning people now. And verse 5, he goes on to say, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Now, some translators would say that the Greek word there for overcome could also mean understood. So the darkness has not understood it as well. Perhaps it means a bit of both. John is using the figurative language of Genesis to describe what seem like the Word who is light and life and darkness is against it and doesn't understand it. Now, darkness doesn't oppose anything, does it? It can't oppose anything. It doesn't have understanding and so the darkness we can deduce must represent someone. It must be those who oppose and don't understand the person who is the Word. I said that we could title this section, Jesus is the Creator, but we've read the whole passage, of course, and we know for sure that it's Jesus because that's how He rounds out His momentous introduction. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. Jesus is light and life. And Jesus is not understood, and He's opposed, but not overcome by men committed to the darkness. Or we can probably deduce this is disobedience. 
Brothers and sisters, if you read through verses, especially verses like these, and you just kind of think to yourself, yes, you know, check the box, already knew that, let's keep going, then you've not thought deeply enough about these verses. You've not thought deeply enough about Jesus. It's one thing to know things that the Bible teaches. It's another to ponder these truths and seek to grow in awe and wonder at who Jesus is. There's a saying that goes like this, familiarity breeds contempt. And it means basically that when we become familiar with something or someone, we tend to gradually think that it's just ordinary. No matter how awesome or incredible that person or that thing was when we first met it or found out about it. Familiarity breeds contempt. Someone or someone awesome over time oftentimes becomes just kind of ho-hum, ordinary, expected. And this is especially and sadly can be true about Jesus in our lives. That's one of the reasons that getting outdoors and considering nature and the heavens can help us grow in awe and wonder when we think about Jesus, the Creator. Jesus made everything. Have you stopped to think about that? Jesus made everything. He made towering mountains and terrifying volcanoes. He fashioned every bird and creature down to the most smallest detail. He made the beauty of eagles. He made the raw power of lions. That's the work of Jesus. Yesterday, uh, I actually was in a plane flying over the Palm Island. I did eventually jump out of that plane with a parachute. But uh, while I was in the plane, I could look up and down the coast of Dubai. And it was a beautiful, clear day. And you could see just about everything. I could see all the way down to our, where our home is, near the canal and the Burj Khalifa, and everything past that as well, and the other direction as well. It was just incredible to think about what has happened in this country in the last 50 years. All that has been built here. It is stupendous. And yet, the works of man pale in comparison to what Jesus has done in creation. Man makes skyscrapers, but Jesus made the sky. Man can occasionally paint beautiful masterpieces of art, but Jesus creates every single person a unique living masterpiece. Man sends rockets into space, but Jesus filled the heavens with billions and billions of stars and comets and planets. Our solar system is in what astronomers call the Milky Way. It's a galaxy, that's what they call it. It contains lots of solar systems. It contains up to what they think is maybe four billion stars and maybe another four billion planets. Up until 1920, astronomers believed that the Milky Way was all there was to the universe. 
Now, we know that there are an estimated two trillion galaxies in the universe. Two trillion. Jesus made every single one of them. It's hard to imagine. Our brains just kind of freeze up, don't they? It's hard to grasp the truths in verses 1 through 5. But you and I should never, ever stop trying. Never stop considering it. Never stop trying to understand how it is that Jesus is the Creator God. I encourage you, ask the Lord to give you a sense of awe and wonder at the fact that Jesus is the Creator. Following Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life will be strengthened when you see Jesus in a new light. When Jesus goes from being ho-hum to amazing. Jesus is the Creator. But there's more. There's more here in verses 6-13. through 13. John tells us that Jesus is the life giver. That's the second point this afternoon. Jesus is the life giver in verses 6 through 13. At the end of verses 4 and 5, John is shifted to speaking about the word using this metaphor of light. And so he carries on with that metaphor into those verses. First in verses 6, 7, and 8, he identifies the first person who became a witness that testified to the world about who the light was. That witness was John the Baptist. And just like the prologue intros, just like the prologue, which is John's introduction into his gospel, John the Baptist functioned as an introducer or an introduction to who Jesus was 2,000 years ago when they both walked the earth. God sent John to the Jews to announce and testify that Jesus was the light. Now, John's birth was also a miraculous birth, not quite as miraculous as Jesus's. And it uh, it was announced to his parents by angels, of course, before it happened. We're going to see in the rest of chapter 1 that there was confusion and misunderstanding about who John was, just like there will be confusion and misunderstanding about who Jesus is. But John was clear. He was merely a forerunner of someone who would come after him who was more important than him. He made that crystal clear. And so it was John's work to bear witness and reveal Jesus, who was the light of God, who was coming into a spiritually dark world. Just like God spoke and light came into the world in Genesis 1, Jesus was the light coming into the world after John announced Him. So verses 9 through 11 explain that the light that John testified to was the true light, he says. Or we could say the real or genuine light. We're going to see that word repeated over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. True. It means real or genuine. Jesus entered into the world, but the world didn't know Him. And when John, the Gospel author, speaks about the world, he's referring not to creation, but to people in rebellion against God. 
What incredible irony there is in that everything in creation, including you and I, has been made by Jesus, and yet when He showed up on the scene, they didn't recognize Him. They didn't know who He was. And the rest of John's gospel will make it clear that this isn't just plain ignorance. This isn't the kind of ignorance or not knowing that comes from just lacking the proper information. This isn't like going to the airport to receive someone and you don't know what they look like, so you're liable to miss them when they come out of the terminal. When I went to the airport back in October to pick up Basant and Gunjan when they were flying in from Lucknow, I had to have a picture of them so that I would recognize them. Instead, the world's inability to recognize Jesus, the light, is a blindness that comes from sin for which God is going to hold us responsible for. The moral responsibility of recognizing Jesus, the creator and light of life, is driven home by John in verse 11 when he says, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. The Jews were known as God's people. And when the Lord rescued them from Egypt, back in the book of Exodus, He told them, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. That's Exodus Exodus 19.5. But now, Jesus, the light, has come into their midst and they don't know Him. Now, if verse 10 and 11 are a shocking disappointment, Verses 12 and 13 give us some hope. Not everyone rejected the light. Look back at verses 12 and 13 with me. Let's let's look through those again. He says, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Word who created and the light who entered into the world gives the right to become children of God to those who receive Him, who believe in His name, it says. John's told us back in verse 4, in Him was life. And now we see that not only does He give physical life, but He gives spiritual life. No doubt, everyone who rejects Jesus is physically alive physically breathing, and Jesus made that possible. But Jesus, the true light, gives the right to be born of God. He gives spiritual life, spiritual rebirth. He shares the life of God with men. But He only gives that right to those who believe in His name. When the Bible speaks about the name of God, it's not just referring to what we call God. It's not just what would be written on God's name tag. In the Bible, the name of someone indicates far more. Their name represents their whole character and their reputation, their goals in life. And so to believe in Jesus' name means more than just agreeing that Jesus is the Son of God sent into the world. It means understanding something of His holiness and His love and His mercy. It means understanding what He came into the world to do. 
And believing in Jesus means submitting yourself to Him because He's God. He's the King of the universe. That's why taking the Lord's name in vain is so much more than just a reference to saying bad words or curse words. No, no, it means claiming the Lord's name for yourself, but it has no effect in your life. It's in vain. So believing in the name of Jesus, the light, is the only way to become a true child of God, sharing in the life of God. And John gives us a list of ways that you can't become a child of God, that people perhaps thought maybe you could become a child of God in these ways. In verse 13, he says it's not by being born of blood, which probably means through ethnic or family heritage. It's it's not by being born of the will of the flesh, which probably refers to your parents conceiving you. He says it's not by being born of the will of man, which probably refers to some human decision to grant or bestow participation in the family of God, like a king could do, perhaps, like if he were to knight you. None of these ways will gain a person the right to become a child of God. Instead, it's something bestowed only on those who believe in the name of Jesus, the light. Friends, this is why the answer to, how did you become a Christian? can never be, well, my family is Christian. It's a wonderful gift, of course, to be born into a family that regularly attends church, where your parents are faithful Christians who believe in Jesus, who lead the family in studying the Scripture together and making sure that the gospel is taught to their children and in the family. That's a wonderful heritage to have. And every single one of you who are parents, I hope, You are raising your children in that way, letting them see your relationship with Christ, introducing them to Jesus from the earliest of ages. But everyone who has become a child of God has done so by believing in His name, truly taking Him on as the Lord and Savior of their life. And so that's why it's so, so very important that you as parents share the gospel with your children. Now, when your children are very, very young, it's difficult to know whether or not they've truly trusted in Christ. Little children are so often eager to please their parents, and they'll repeat a prayer that you teach them to say, and it's quite possible that a a child at a very, very young age can become a Christian. We pray that it happens that way for every one of our children in Covenant Hope Church. But it's best to wait until that child has come of age, so to speak, become more of an adult, been tested by the world and the flesh and the devil to see if they are truly trusting in Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian but exploring Christianity, this is a great place to come, Covenant Hope Church. I I hope you feel welcome. And honestly, John is a wonderful book of the Bible to learn about Christianity in. It's one of the best, I would say. But I want to point out to you that verses 12 and 13 show us that becoming a Christian involves two things, a decision on your part 
and God's initiative as well. Both things are necessary. Both are important. On the one hand, the key question for you is going to be, will you receive Jesus? Will you believe in Jesus? Will you believe in His name? But it's also a gift of God. It's a right that's granted to you. He grants the right to become a child of God. He gifts the new birth for a person to come into the family of God. It is dependent as well on God's initiative. A person can't make it happen. And so I ask something that I suspect I'm going to ask many times as we make our ways through the gospel of John, and that is, will you receive Jesus? Will you believe in His name? How long will you wait? You don't know what tomorrow holds. You must understand about Jesus something of His character and something of His purpose for coming into the world. And in a nutshell, He came into the world to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for the sins that we've committed and the penalty that we deserve, but He pays it for us because He's the one whom we've offended. He's the Creator who made us. He's the one that we've disobeyed. And so He has the right to pay our penalty for us. What a gift of grace that Jesus came to die on the cross and be raised again to new life so that we could be given the right to be children of God. I encourage you, friend, consider believing in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the Word who created everything. Jesus is the light who is the life giver. But lastly, John prepares us to meet Jesus by announcing that Jesus is the God revealer. That's the third point this afternoon, and we see it in verses 14 through 18. Up to 14, John has been drawing on Genesis-type metaphors to point to Jesus, the beginning, light, life. But lastly, John prepares us to meet Jesus by announcing and telling us about Him with Exodus language. John returns to calling Jesus the Word. You probably noticed that in verse 14. And rather than simply say that the true light came into the world, he announces that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In many places in the Bible, flesh refers to the sinful nature. But here, it simply means that the eternal creator who was with God and was God, he took on a body. It doesn't mean that Jesus transformed from God into man. It means that Jesus, who was God, took on flesh and added a human nature to his divine nature. In fact, when we read through this Ligonier statement of Christology earlier in the service, we said this, that he was truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. This, uh, this week I was um, having a conversation with the watchman in our compound. 
Nadim is from Pakistan, and he's Muslim. And uh, somehow we shifted the conversation from my garage door opener to the fact that I teach the Bible in a church every weekend. And uh, Nadim then promptly decided not to talk to me about the garage door opener and tell me that I needed to read the Quran, which I, I appreciate. And I told him that I've read parts of the Quran. And he said, you know, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that He is a prophet sent from God. And I just decided to cut straight to the chase, and I told Nadim, yes, but we believe He is God, and we worship Him. He said, no, 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 no. Man is man, and God is God. Of course, I said, yes, but He became a man and stayed God. <laughs> he was the God-man. Well, our conversation ended in a turned back to the garage door opener about that time. <laughs> but I pray for Nadim, that someone who speaks Urdu will be able to explain to him the incarnation, which is what this, these first phrases in verse 14 are all about. It says there that he dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It literally means that word dwelt means pitched a tent among us. That language of pitching a tent, of course, would point us back to Exodus and God's goal of living in the midst of people in the tabernacle, the portable temple that God had instructed Moses and the Israelites how to build so that His glory could come into it and He could dwell in the midst of a sinful people. In Exodus 25.8, the Lord says, "...and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." This is the same idea right here in verse 14. God's goal has always been to enable sinful people to live in His presence, in His infinitely holy presence. The word dwelling makes us think about Exodus, but so do the next phrases as well. Look back at verse 14 again, the second half of it. He says, John says, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, in Exodus, God's glory in the very last chapter, chapter 40 of Exodus, after the tabernacle has been completed, God's glory come and, comes and fills the tabernacle. And Moses couldn't even go inside. It was that threatening, that awesome. And that's what John and the other disciples saw in Jesus. Glory. Glory is the physical brightness of God's holy and loving character on display. Isaiah saw it when he was in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, and he thought he was going to die. When Moses was on the mountain of the Lord, he asked to see God's glory. But the Lord would only let him see his backside as he passed before him. And now John is claiming that when the Son of the Father took on a human body, they were able to see his glory in all its fullness. When Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, the Lord, the Lord replied by saying, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Even in Exodus, the glory of the Lord is connected with His goodness and His grace and His mercy. So John can say that when they were with Jesus, they saw the full glory in the of God in the grace that He offered and the truth that He spoke. In verse 15, John mentions John's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony, that is, that Jesus is more important than Himself and that even John was born, even though He was born before Jesus, Jesus pre-existed John. Indeed, He pre-existed everyone. And everything, as we learned in verses 1 through 3. And then John spells it out loud and clear in verse 16. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The NIV translates this verse, Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. It's like pouring more grace on top of the grace that you've already gotten. That's what God was doing when He sent His only Son into the world. What was the grace that had already been given? Well, we look in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't that there was no grace in the law. The very reason that they were out in the desert by the mountain of the Lord receiving the commandments from God was a grace. Otherwise, they would have been back as slaves in Egypt still. It was God's kindness and mercy that He had rescued them. He was showing them grace. Israel was a sinful people and God is entirely holy and pure. He didn't have to claim them as His people. He could have destroyed them and been completely justified. In fact, He started to do that at one point in the middle of Exodus. But instead, He loved them. He gave them the sacrificial system, which when carried out in faith, enabled them to be forgiven and to live in God's presence and experience all His blessings. And now, Jesus has come. God enfleshed. The law and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system were all given to prepare them and us for this greatest act of grace from God. The Son of God becoming a man to reveal God and make forgiveness and eternal life with God possible for everyone to make it clear. Grace upon grace. Grace is unearned favor. Grace is undeserved forgiveness. Grace is a just sentence of eternal punishment wiped away stricken from the records in heaven, and instead having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's grace. And how would He do it? On the cross. Jesus' crucifixion was our gracious God taking the punishment that we deserve so that we can become His true children adopted into His family, granted full rights to the incalculable inheritance of being with Him forever. Grace upon grace. 
Have you experienced God's grace in Jesus Christ? If you have, I promise you, you need more. You need more grace. And guess what? He has more. The famous Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. There might be weeks where you feel like my heart is just an endless gusher of sin. And yet there is grace, grace sufficient for that. Do you see that sin in yourself? Are you weighed down with guilt and a troubled conscience? Do you feel like Jesus might be just about now tired of forgiving you? Oh, no. No, no. He has grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to give. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John has circled back in a way here in this last verse in the prologue to where he started, reminding us of the invisible God who has existed, was existing before creation and has never been seen by man. The first phrase in this last verse, no one has ever seen God, this is a reference to the Father. But after that, colon there. It's speaking about Jesus, the Son, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made Him known. He's revealed the Father to us. Later in John 14, Philip, one of his disciples, is going to say to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us, Jesus. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Some people speak in their lives about trying to find God. I'm trying to find God. Maybe you've said that to yourself at some period of time. But they don't know where to look. They look inside they look around, but they can't find Him. But the fact of the matter is, is that God has come looking for us. Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence in the garden. But all along, God's plan was to leave the purity and the perfection of heaven and to come into our dark and wicked world to offer us grace and make a way for us to come into His presence come into His family, become His true spiritual children. The Son of the Father has come into the world to make God known. John has given us a tremendous introduction in these 18 verses. Do you want to know God? Look to Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Worship Jesus. He's our creator. He's our life giver. And He reveals the Father to us. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again give you praise for the kindness that you showed us to send your one and only Son into the world to dwell among us, to die on our behalf, to be raised to new life so that we might have be raised to new life one day. We praise you for Jesus. We pray that you'd help us know him and worship him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.